It has been a wild ride these first two weeks of the Trump presidency. And regardless of where you are on the political spectrum, it's clear, as we heard from one congressional representative, we're not in Kansas anymore. The news from Washington changes minute by minute, speeding up so fast that it can seem we've missed a month when it's only been an hour. But let's take some time together out of the rush of tweets and current events and 24-7 news. Let's begin with the prophet Isaiah and study words that have stood for centuries. Our first lesson is addressed to the people, to the nation. The prophets did not generally address individuals, but rather the nation as a group that does or does not follow God. Isaiah speaks for God and says, Announce to my people their rebellion, to the house of Jacob their sins. Yet day after day they seek me and delight to know my ways, as if they were a nation that practiced righteousness and did not forsake the ordinance of their God. Faithfulness was not just an individual responsibility so much as a social one. The first lesson goes on and becomes a dialogue about fasting, which was and remains a practice of self-denial and a type of prayer or offering. But just as Micah last Sunday chastised those who sought to offer sacrifice, so Isaiah, speaking with authority on behalf of God, challenges those who would fast by cutting right to the point. Is not this the fast that I choose, to loose the bonds of injustice, to undo the thongs of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free, and to break every yoke? Is it not to share your bread with the hungry and bring the homeless poor into your house when you see the naked to cover them? The prophet is saying that genuine fasting leads the people to conquer their own self-centeredness and then reach out to include all those in need, the poor, the hungry, the oppressed, and all the outcasts of a self-serving society. Think for a moment of all those who we, as a society, cast out and what God asks of us. Prayer and fasting find their social dimension in almsgiving, and almsgiving has both, both a corporal and a spiritual component. Because, as we all know, there are hungers and thirsts that no amount of bodily food or drink will cure. All genuine spirituality brings about a transformed relationship to God and one's neighbor. When God's social conditions are fulfilled, then the people will live in the light of God's presence. Isaiah concludes, You shall be like a watered garden, like a spring of water whose waters will never fail. Your ancient ruins shall be rebuilt. You shall raise up the foundations of many generations. You shall be called the repairer of the breach, the restorer of streets to live in. 
have already told some of you about one woman I met who was a repairer of the breach. I met her on a night flight many years ago. She was older than I and had an Eastern European accent. We got to talking and she asked me about my family and I asked her about hers. She had a son teaching in Boston and a daughter living on a kibbutz in Israel. I assumed my companion was Jewish, and when I made a remark to that effect, she explained that she was a Christian, but had raised her daughter as a Jew. When I asked why, she told me this story. When the Nazis came to her town in Poland to round up the Jews for removal to the camps, no one really knew what was happening, but they all knew it was something dreadful. The smell of death was in the air. This woman was doing her weekly shopping near the train station the day the Nazis arrived. Gestapo officers were pushing the Jewish people onto the trains, and one was pushing a woman who had a little girl with her. He turned to the Jewish woman and, pointing to her daughter, asked, Is that your child? The woman stopped, looked straight at my companion, and said, No, she's hers. And so you took her daughter? I asked. Yes, she nodded. What would you have done? It's sometimes hard to believe that the Holy One from all eternity, who set in motion the sun and stars, could take our human nature and become our kind. Yet that is our Christian understanding expressed in the doctrine of the Incarnation. This God who embodied kindness invites us to partake of kinship and kindness in ever-deepening ways. By kindness, I do not mean niceness or sweetness, although that could be part of it. Rather, I mean behavior that springs from the conviction that we belong to one another. Kindness is when those folks become our folks. In our Gospel lesson, we hear again Jesus speaking to his followers on the mountain. And in a sense, we too are on that mountain, hearing his words that have come to us 2,000 years later, but in the same world embroiled in politics and power then as now. Jesus says, we are the salt of the earth and the light of the world. Salt and light. What did he mean by these strange and compelling words? First, let's look, let's look at salt. While there used to be just Morton salt, or maybe kosher salt, now we have salt from all over the world claiming different properties and even coming in different tints. Right here in Northern California, we have the only sea salt drying flats in the United States. Basically, salt is a clear or white solid compound, an ordinary commodity, but an extremely precious one because without it, we cannot live. It is also what makes many foods taste good and is a basic preservative, allowing our ancestors before refrigeration to eat through the frozen winter and scorching summer. It was so valuable that it was used by ancient Jews and Muslims to seal legal agreements. And it was also a salt tax in China that funded building the Great Wall. 
It has cleansing and healing properties, but as we know, it can sting if we get it in our eyes or it touches a wound. No doubt Jesus' hearers wondered at their own preservative and purifying properties. Pure sodium chloride does not deteriorate, but people do, morals do, our best laid plans do. Jesus knew that people, unlike salt, could lose their savor and saltiness, and they would be rendered useless if they did. Jesus also says, you are the light of the world. The rabbis of that period used to refer to God as the light of the world. And Jesus used their phrase to describe the ragtag listening multitude on the mountain. People like us. The phrase, the light of the world, is found only one other place in scripture, and that's in the Gospel of John. There Jesus says, I am the light of the world. So Jesus describes both himself and his followers with the same metaphor. We're clearly invited to share his purpose, to bring about the reign of the God of love. And we are named as bright beacons in that reign. Now this does not confer superiority on the followers of Christ. Rather, it gives us a great responsibility. And the words no doubt seemed high and magnificent to the ordinary people following Jesus. It was sort of like saying, you sit at the right hand of God. People then, as now, questioned their self-worth. But what if we are indeed the light of the world? When in doubt, why not believe our Savior's word and take them as true? In 1555, two English bishops, Hugh Latimer and Nicholas Ridley, were burned at the stake for attempting to reform the English church. Bishop Latimer was an old man who wore his shroud to his execution. As the executioner kindled the fire, he turned to Bishop Ridley, who was dressed in the vestments of his office, and said, be of good comfort, Master Ridley, and play the man. We shall this day light such a candle by God's grace in England as shall never be put out. Could it be that we are to be the lights when the other lights go out? When other friends and lovers fail? When alcohol and drugs have shown their dead ends? when the world's promises have let us down, when evil is mobilized and death at the door, perhaps then we are to summon our light and let it shine. Once in New York, I took the wrong subway train and found myself in a very dangerous neighborhood that I had been warned about. I asked the subway ticket agent in her barred office if I could catch a taxi at the top of the stairs she said she wouldn't go up those stairs if she were me. Rather, she suggested I take the next train to the end of the line and then return to my proper destination. Suddenly, I was afraid. All around me were men in overcoats looking ominous. I grew more and more afraid and realized I was visibly shaking. 
I knew enough about urban life to know that I should not appear vulnerable, so I put my head down to cover the tears welling my eyes. Slowly, I became aware that the whole group was gathering and the men were closing in on me. I prayed the train would come when one spoke quietly and said, What's the matter, dear? I looked up and without thinking said, I'm scared. He responded, Ain't none of us going to let anybody hurt you. Don't you worry now. We're here. The source of my immediate fear had suddenly become one of comfort. Seldom have I felt so chastened and warmed at once. All of us are initially afraid of the dark, and yet each of us is called to be the light. Not light bringers as bearers of wisdom and knowledge, but simply by illuminating the larger truth that we belong to one another. We see it in a stranger who raised a doomed woman's child as she would have wished. In the bright and searing flames of the martyrdom of bishops. And in an unknown man in a subway who cared for a stranger, taking her in and allowing the light of Christ to shine in that underground gloom. Salt and light. Emily Dickinson once said, it's such a common glory. It is a common glory. The humble and the splendid, salt and light. That's what Jesus says we are and continues to call us to be. Amen. Amen.